40 years ago today, a very young reporter named Julie Washington worked her first day for The Plain Dealer, and she'll do it again today. It's her 40th anniversary, which is a remarkable achievement given the current challenges in journalism, and I think only the best make it that far. Julie is clearly one of those. She is one of the hardest working people I've ever met, and one of those people that has nothing but nice bones in her body. She is the friendliest person I've probably ever dealt with. Congratulations, Julie Washington. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Layla Atassi, and 40 years at one place. We're all journalists. Years. You've got to really salute That's amazing. that. Was she 10? I mean, or five? <laughs> I mean, Julie, <laughs> she's so youthful and amazing, and I can't believe 40 years. <laughs> Congratulations yep. to her, but I, that's stunning because I would not have guessed that at all. Wow, that's incredible. What a career. Well, in one place, in one newsroom. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the just, amazing part, yeah. It's, it's just, you know, and she's she's done a bit of everything. She's was part of the backbone of our coverage of the pandemic. She's a health reporter, and, and she lost her partner for a good bit of the pandemic and was doing it all by herself, and she never complains she just works and works and and uh, cranks it out and it's always professional she and it's just uh, uh, one of the the best in the business so i'm glad she's here i'm glad she's still doing it let's get going so do the cleveland browns want to build a new stadium not on the lakefront or don't they <laughs> Layla, we had a hell of a weekend trying to keep track of what they're saying because they're all over the place. But the upshot of it is they're out of their minds if they think the public has the money to build them a billion-dollar stadium. So kind of take us through this thing because they changed their story multiple times. I've got whiplash. I'm a little stiff from it. This, yeah, it's tough. It's <laughs> we got wind of this over the weekend. Reporter Caitlin Durbin kind of tri- she tried to flush it out. Neotrans uh, real estate blogger Ken Prendergast reported. Um, based on information from unnamed sources that that Browns owners Dee and Jimmy Haslam want a new football stadium, a domed one, when their current lease is up in 2028. That's a billion-dollar project that would cost taxpayers mightily. And sources told Prendergast they'd, they'd even be willing to push for a new location near downtown if that's necessary. In, in that blog post, Peter John Baptiste, who's the senior vice president of communications for the Browns and Haslam Sports Group, told Prendergast he, he was a little too far out in front of the story and wouldn't comment on the specifics. So that sounded like confirmation to us. When we first read that, well, 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 let's specifically, he said, "You're ahead of the story, so we're not commenting." Which basically says there is a story. He didn't say no, not happening. He said you're ahead of the story. So I took that right, as right. And so when Caitlin called him, he tried to kind of walk the line. He said they're focused primarily on renovation but they're doing a feasibility to study to see what a new stadium could look like. And they consider the lakefront home, but they would be open to moving if that's what others want and push them to do. It was really weird. But by the end of last night, they had put out a statement that seemed to be settling more firmly on the side of staying put and renovating but it still felt like you could mince words and come up with a different meaning. You know, I was like reading into every single word that they chose in that in that statement. It was like, okay, 
in in a, in a few years yeah. are we going to come back to the statement and say oh i see that they that they didn't really mean this <laughs> i see no, how this I, turned I out differently <laughs> i think they got blowback because of what caitlin reported off of what the neotrans bug said and so they put out the statement saying no no and look think about it they have they have sparked this massive discussion for many groups about refashioning the lakefront building a bridge to the lakefront and a sports village and lakefront exactly, development yeah. around the stadium so all these people have invested their good faith in this and all of a sudden there's talk and and what i find disingenuous that neotrans blog didn't make this up this this seems like it was a weather balloon put out there hey let's see what people think one of the amazing things was one of the two sites is the site of the downtown cleveland post office which is not just a post office it is the region's distribution right. center and they just said yeah well we'll take the post office site it's like well it's occupied <laughs> you know it's the seats taken <laughs> And that defeats the whole idea of the village because that is cut off from downtown in every way it could be by highways and railroad tracks. It, that one makes no sense whatsoever. I do wonder, Layla, and this could be the paranoid Chris. I'm sure whether it is, they are taking go ahead. such such a beating on the Deshaun Watson case that they decided to put another unpopular idea out there to deflect I mean, this, this tension <laughs> to Watson. That's some weird PR strategy, but who knows? I mean, you're right. Don't don't you dare ask for a billion dollars right now for a football stadium. You know, you know, I mean, when the city and county are absolutely tapped out and have so many more pressing financial needs and, and you, the Browns, are still telling us you're comfortable with this Deshaun Watson scandal, don't even think about it. Yeah, walk it back. Walk it back. Tell us tell us well, you're going to renovate and you'll take what what you get. I don't I don't want to even hear they, it. They have more money than the city and the county. They they would more easily afford building a stadium yeah, than the taxpayers could. Yeah, make that could. part of your of your sports uh, sports village. Build a stadium as part of your sports village. There, and own it. And then one last thing, they said the 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 blog said that they could use the revenue from developing the lakefront to pay for the stadium but the problem with that is the haslam's don't own any of the lakefront right. <laughs> so why would they get revenue from the lakefront that's not their right. land the whole the whole thing seems i mean i i i do believe they floated this to to get to get the the temperature now that they've had it they've pulled it back and maybe that's the last we'll hear of it for a few years well we'll see you're listening <laughs> yeah we'll see you're listening to today in ohio so some Clevelanders use their recycling bins for trash, but others want to use them for recycling. How are the refuse collectors to know the difference? And what kind of cockamamie way is this to run a recycling program, Courtney? The strategy all comes down to stickers, Chris. It's all based on the stickers. So so city residents who, who have had this return to recycling this week after a two-year hiatus, Big city, no recycling program. Here we go. We're starting it up again. The The administration of Justin Bibb wants to suss out who the recyclers are with those who are not participating in the new program. You just got to put these big white stickers on your bins. And, and that's how the trash guys can figure out where to dump your can as they're going down the street. Now, it is a little bit of a wonky process here. We get things going off the ground. 
Because some blue bins, their contents are going into trash trucks. The ones with the stickers, they're getting recycled. But so, this so, is so, all... So stop. Just stop for a second. Because th- this went off the rails during the Jackson administration. So the Jackson administration cancels recycling because of contract issues. And people start using the recycling bins for trash. And the trash trucks picked it up. What were they thinking? That... that automatically creates confusion for the long-term future. Why on earth would they start letting people put trash in recycling bins? Well, that was kind of a weird part of of our program going defunct in, in spring of 2020. You know, former Mayor Frank Jackson encouraged people to continue sorting their recyclables out, putting the correct items in the recycling bins, and putting them out to the curb. But People caught on real quick. If it's all going to the landfill, I've got a second trash bin. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. I thought that was so, I mean, that was garbage. I mean, to, for, for, yeah, for exactly. lack of a better word, right? So, so dumb. stupid. I mean, Keep sorting because... and then we'll come by with our trash truck and dump it all in the same truck. <laughs> so now we have blue recycling bins like you have all over the place. But the trash guys don't know which blue recycling bins are for trash and which ones mm-hmm. are for recycling. And instead of the city saying no more trash and recycling bins, they're going to continue to allow those to be used for trash and put stickers on the recycling bins. That's the strategy. That is the temporary strategy. So that's what we're going to be seeing over the next couple months this summer. It's kind of the transition period band-aid to get city residents back into the groove of the new recycling program. What we're gonna see this fall is the city plans to hire a contractor for half a million dollars to go out and pick up all the bins from the homes that haven't opted in, all the stickerless bins currently that currently contain trash. The city's gonna go yank them off the streets and then then we'll be at a place where only the blue bins out in circulation uh, okay. are for those participating. Okay, I gotta stop you again, because think about what you just said. They're gonna send a contractor out to collect the blue bins, which will be in people's backyards and in their side yards and in their garages. They're gonna be trespassing to get these blue bins back because people aren't gonna just willingly put them out on the street. People might wanna keep them. So how's that gonna work? Yeah, we gotta see that. The city doesn't have a contractor <laughs> yet. We don't have information on how it's gonna work, but you're right. I mean, I can see that being a huge mess. And the thing is here is that a lot of people's black bins there's always kind of a demand for replacement black bins, the, the normal garbage bins. And a lot of folks' bins are cracked and breaking and they haven't been able to get a replacement from the city yet. So people rely on those recycling bins to, to hang on to their normal garbage. So I think there's going to be some resistance when the collectors come out, to your point. Did they just buy faulty bins? I mean, in most places, those bins seem to last forever. You know, it's the the trash bins. I don't know. They have a certain useful life, and they expect some breakage. So I'm not really sure. All right, this okay. is this is one of the most nonsensical ways of doing business I've ever seen. And, you know, and if you take the blue bins away, if people want to opt back into recycling, you're gonna have to bring them back. I mean, it's you know what, it's just bizarro. Yeah, All right, we gotta moving see on. <laughs> you're listening to today in Ohio. Does the mailing of absentee ballots to military members and overseas workers mean the Ohio ballots are locked, even though multiple candidates have filed lawsuit for what they say is the unfair blocking of them from appearing on the ballots? 
Lisa, I, it, I guess this means it's over, right? Pretty much. Um, Secretary of State Frank LaRose sent ballots out to military and overseas voters on Friday for the August 2nd primary, but he was facing a federal deadline. So under federal law, they had to go out by a certain time before August 2nd. However, the Ohio Supreme Court is still considering lawsuits from Republican and Democratic candidates that were challenging the February 2nd filing deadline. Um, But this means that the Supreme Court will probably not intervene at this point now that ballots are out. Uh, But this does have repercussions in several districts. And for Democrats, they will not have candidates in several legislative districts, particularly the 24th State Senate District, which leans Democratic right now. It's in the Columbus area. And then the Republicans have no candidates in the 15th House, which is another Democratic-leaning district in southwest Cuyahoga County. Um, LaRose said that the August primary date is unusual. He is encouraging voters abroad to cast their ballot and go to voteohio.gov. So yeah, it sounds like things are, are locked. And like I said, at this point, the Supreme Court is like, well... Uh, we can't move forward with these lawsuits. Just a reminder, the voter registration deadline for the August 2nd primary is July 5th, and early voting begins on July 6th. So if the Supreme Court, which had fast-tracked these suits, came out and said, no, 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 they should be on the ballot, do we mail new ballots to people, or do they just not appear on the ballots that have already gone out? Do we know? Uh, We don't know. I mean, I think we have to wait to hear from the Ohio Supreme Court on whether they're going okay. to intervene or not. Hopefully that'll come today or soon. Wow, what a strange election year. Okay, well, more to come. It's today in Ohio. Layla, it's Outrage Day. You get the second outrage story of the morning. Do we finally have a good indication of how the Cuyahoga County Council will spend its slush funds and how can they spend money that they have never formally authorized? Oh, man. Well, it seems the worst case scenario with these ARPA slush funds have, has come to pass. And county council has has only just gotten started, really. Stimulus Watch reporter Lucas DePrilli learned uh, that this this week, three county council members, Scott Tuma, Sonny Simon, and Michael Gallagher, plan on introducing proposals for their share of these slush funds. And to remind listeners, these are the, the $6 million pots of money that county council decided to carve out from the county's American Rescue Plan Act money for each of them to spend at their own discretion. Of course, as we've pointed out from the beginning, doing that is is really fraught because it opens the door to all kinds of political patronage and, and the possibility that council members would would subordinate important community investments in favor of their own pet projects. In short, you know, this money's going to get squandered, right? So, so anyway, <laughs> you know, Lucas finds out that, indeed, that seems to be happening already. Scott Tuma acknowledged to Lucas that the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, which has been inundated with increased calls for service during the pandemic, had requested consideration for funding from these discretionary funds. And... Tuma said he passed them by because, quote, they're not in his district. Instead, Mm. he's giving $4 million to the publicly owned Ridgewood Golf Course in Parma to rebuild their clubhouse, which the county paid to demolish earlier this year. And he's he's trying to say the clubhouse will bring in a whole bunch of community development and and will, uh, you know, double as a community center. He, he's used the word transformative to describe this project. Yeah. It's a golf yeah. course. 
So, you know, and, and I don't want to let Sonny Simon and Mike Gallagher off the hook either. They're not much better. Their projects include like beautify, beautifying Strongsville and improving baseball fields and stuff. And these are communities that have their own ARPA dollars. So you can't argue that this isn't a, you know, political patronage kind of thing. You know, if you're pumping county ARPA money into these these uh, these kinds of projects I and, and overlooking something as important as the rape crisis center, you know? Let's talk about that for a minute, too, because ARPA dollars, one of the chief purposes was to restore or to help communities deal with the challenges of the pandemic. And the Rape Crisis Center, I think the story said, has seen a 70% increase in in requests for assistance as a result of the pandemic because all these people were staying at home. So it's a direct a direct cause of, of the need for the money, they're not getting it. Instead, we're doing golf courses. You know, Republicans are all over Joe Biden saying that the hyperinflation that we're seeing right now is, is caused in part by all the money that was pumped into the economy to during the pandemic. And if that money were used for transformative purposes, I think people could see it. But if we're seeing projects like this, it's right. just what what are we doing? What what why did we use our precious tax dollars for things and, like this? And you know, this? Gallagher had said he would prefer to fund the county's own Health and Human Services Department, you know, which provides adjacent services. He'd rather fund them than a nonprofit that isn't technically part of the county. But you know, we we're seeing I mean, the city of Cleveland has used ARPA money to support the food bank which provided critical services during during the uh the pandemic i mean these are the these are the services that that upheld the community during the most critical times uh you know and and other and also you know i want to say which we have to mention they have never had a public discussion on these so-called discretionary funds much much less voted on the rules governing their expenditure so for any of them to lean on the explanation that the rape crisis center is not in their district is total garbage and frankly even if that were the rule the rape crisis center is in your district they're in everyone's district their work is ubiquitous because the people they serve live everywhere and the funding request they submitted is a true pandemic need but no a golf course I can't wait to well, hear how you justify that at the committee table, how you justify that a golf course suffered on account of the pandemic, and B, that $4 million would be put to transformational use by rebuilding that golf course's clubhouse. Let's hear that. Right, go back, though, to something you just said. They never had never. a discussion or a vote on spending $66 million, which means there's a violation of the Sunshine Law. You cannot form policy like this without having a public conversation. They clearly have had private conversations. They clearly have gotten together and said, we're gonna squander $66 million on slush funds, but they never talked about it in the open. That's not what open government is. The law requires those discussions about policy be public, and they're doing it in mm -hmm. secret without ever once being out in front of the public saying, hey, we're gonna squander $66 million. Right. Good stuff by Lucas. This is why we created Stimulus Watch. Our readers love it, and so do we. It's today in Ohio. Speaking of stimulus money, how much does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine have on hand to spend 
five months before he goes before voters in his re-election bid. Courtney, has he been saving this money, do you think, so he can come forward in these last months to say, hey, Ohio, look what I'm giving you. You know, you might be onto something there, Chris. Part of it is, you know, the second batch of money is landing, like I think this month in, in people's coffers. So there is some timing there, but I don't think it hurts that as he heads into election season, he's sitting on more than $2 billion. Um, you know, that $2 billion is part of the total $5.5 billion that Ohio received last year and is receiving this year under the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, DeWine has kind of floated some ideas of where that money could go, but we don't really have anything concrete yet. You know, there's, he said, you know, we could use that $2 billion more money for water sewer infrastructure or broadband expansion. There's, of course, a host of different ideas out there by different interest groups who want to see a piece of the money come their way. But, you know, when you're talking about election timing, I think it's important to note that a lot of this money can't get approved until November when the legislature's back in session. So that could either be that could potentially be a disadvantage if DeWine's looking to get this money under lock before the election, I think. Right. Well, he could propose it, though. He could still go around and say, and here's what I want to do to spend the money, even if the legislature ultimately doesn't do it. It's a lot of money. There's a lot you can do with it. Hopefully, he won't spend it on golf courses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I hope so. So, you know, we've got a whole bunch of ideas here. You know, some conservative groups want to see tax cuts funded with this mm -hmm. money. A group of food banks and, and others are lobbying for affordable housing civil service employee groups want a bonus for their for their paychecks for providing government services during the pandemic but for his part dewine just kind of floated that idea of water sewer broadband infrastructure and other than that it's kind of an open open pot of money i have a feeling we'll get a good idea of how he wants to spend it in the days leading to november you are listening to today in ohio all right, Lisa, we're all standing at the gas pump wide-eyed as we see the total price to fill up our gas tanks these days. It seems like prices are going up everywhere, but is it inflation or is it price gouging with what Columbia Gas of Ohio wants to do to raise typical bills for the transmission of natural gas? I don't know. The jury's still out on this one, so let's talk about it. So Columbia Gas of Ohio has 1.5 million customers in the state. They cover 71% of Ohio counties, including many here in Northeast Ohio. So they're asking the Public Utilities Commission for what I think amounts to about a 27% rate increase on distributing gas. This would generate $221 million more a year in perpetuity. So this will be a permanent hike. They say that their reasons for this hike include infrastructure replacement. They want to add five years to their existing replacement program. They also want to continue for another five years a rider for capital expenditures. They want to establish uh, a federally mandated investment rider, which will be used to pay for compliance with what's called a mega rule to prevent pipeline leaks and explosions. That's a federal rule. So I don't know. You know, Columbia uh, spokespeople said that they've made a significant investment in infrastructure since their last rate case in 2008. So it has been, you know, four years. No, I'm sorry, 14 years since they've had a, a rate increase. The Ohio Consumers Council crunched the numbers, though, and they said maybe that increase should be limited to $10 million a year instead of $221 million. 
Or if if there's guidelines to prove they're spending money on infrastructure, look, we all know with climate change and storms and things, there's a lot of infrastructure at risk. So if they actually prove they spent it on infrastructure to to make us all have safer transmission, fine. But as we've seen with First Energy, mm. they just let them charge more money and didn't make them do anything to earn it. It was frankly criminal what they did there because they claimed it was for infrastructure improvement. Well, and to to be fair, PUCO is holding a hearing. So Ohioans of any stripe can weigh in. They're going to have public hearings at 10 o'clock on July 13th at their uh their location on Broad Street in Columbus. You can send your testimony in writing or you can appear at the hearing live. So at least they're going to get input from the public on it. Wow, think about that. A public hearing on a big project. (laughs) I wonder if the county council is listening about their $66 million slush funds. It's Today in Ohio. Layla, I could feel your sigh of relief all the way across the county. At long last, children under five can get a coronavirus vaccine. Which ones and are there limitations? And meanwhile, has the virus spread abated after its mini surge in Cuyahoga County? I am so happy about this news. I will be calling my pediatrician as soon as possible to ask about an appointment for our toddler. So the FDA granted approval of of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines for use in children six months and older. And they're saying that these are effective despite how long they took to get to that point in the testing phase. The the effectiveness of the vaccines was determined by comparing the immune responses in children with the immune responses in adults in previous studies. And apparently some, some disagreement in the scientific community over how that immune response should be measured might have been what led to this unusually long delay in getting this thing approved. It's unclear whether whether that has you know sowed the seeds of doubt for a lot of parents. Our, our new health reporter, Gretchen Kuda-Crowen, writes that in, in a recent survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation, only one in five parents with children under five say that they plan to vaccinate their kids right away. And those parents report that the delays haven't necessarily dissuaded them against the vaccine. So I'm not sure exactly what is standing in their way. Maybe it's just the fact that, you know, kids don't seem to be get that sick. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks lean back on, on our understanding that little kids don't get sick from COVID. But, um, you know, Dr. Robert Califf, the FDA Commissioner of Food and, and Drugs, said during a press event last week that during the Omicron wave of the virus, children zero to four years of age were hospitalized at a rate about five times higher than during Delta. So that's a little bit of an alarming statistic to keep in mind as we decide how to proceed from here on out now that this this vaccine has been approved for kids, for little ones. Um, so, and meanwhile, yeah. as you said, almost all Ohio counties, including Cuyahoga, are green. So that's another bit of information to consider this summer. So we're designated as having very low COVID transmission, but that's, that, you know, it's always momentary. These, these green uh, moments are, are fleeting. <laughs> well, it flashed very quickly from orange to red. And so it's nice to see it abating. Usually in the summer, you think there's less transmission. Um, it, and look, the, the virus is gonna, going to constantly evolve, and the, the unvaccinated youth are a ripe place for it to, to seize upon, so that vaccine should help, help protect them. I, I, it'll be interesting to see how many parents go for it. All the ones I know uh, that have toddlers are, can't wait. Yep. So. I'm in that camp. Good.
I know you are. <laughs> You've made that clear in the conversations all along. It's today in Ohio. Let's stay with the uh, virus for a second. Let me move ahead. Have the political battles over the COVID vaccine persuaded more people to oppose vaccines in general, meaning more people might be infected by the flu in coming years? Lisa, have we really gone backwards on vaccines? I wish I could say I was surprised at this, but I'm not. Uh, There was a study from UCLA. They used data from the Centers for Disease Control through January of this year to determine changes in vaccination rates for influenza. So in the years 2020 and 2021 flu season, the vaccination rate stayed stable. But for 2021-2022, flu vaccination rates dropped by 4.5% with states that had below average COVID vaccine take-up. States with the highest COVID vaccination rates saw increases in flu vaccinations. So UCLA lead author Dr. Richard Luchter says that uh, this is alarming. He says that the COVID controversy appears to be undermining all kinds of public health efforts. People are starting to recline routine vaccinations that they've had before. So obviously the political landscape is having a a bad effect on, on vaccine uptake. I wonder what the percentage of people who listen to Fox News is that are now not getting the vaccine. I mean, they've peddled so much nonsense about the coronavirus vaccine that it probably has scared people away from vaccines in general. It's a frightening statistic because the flu vaccine has saved lives, a lot of lives. And if people stop not getting it, we're going to see the death rate go up again. Well, and you have some state legislatures that are refusing any vaccine mandates of any kind. And that includes polio, measles, and we're starting to see pockets of measles cropping up again. And if you're sending your kid to a public school and there are kids there that are not vaccinated, you're frightened for your kid. I mean, it's just, it, we, we'd come so far. We'd followed the science for so many generations and we're just going backwards. It's a distressing story. You're listening to Today in Ohio and it's been a good discussion. We haven't got through all the news. We'll have to come back at it tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Layla. Layla, you're done for the week. We'll talk to you again next week. And just a word to the wise, I'll be off in the first week of July, and Layla will be the host of this podcast. First time we're doing a guest Going host. Off the rails. Thanks, to everybody who listens. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, to everybody who listens. Come on back tomorrow. We'll be talking about the news some more.